Take your Bible with me and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to continue our time there. We're actually going to read through the first verse in chapter 11 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 23 is where we'll start and we'll read through 11.1. This last week and a couple of days we spent 3,000 miles in a minivan with five small children. Um, so my energy levels may be a little bit lower um, this morning, um, we made a couple memories, but we need to get to work in this text. They, my, my wife is a warrior. It was, it went as well as we had hoped. Hope for the best, prepare for the worst, and we prepared for the worst, and the Lord blessed us with, I think, the best. So let's get to work right out of the gate then in this text. Let me read this for us. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 23 through chapter 11, verse 1. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question in the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner, and you are disposed to go eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? For if I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. Immediately in this text, we see Paul continuing in the vein he's been for a handful of chapters. And that first portion of verse 23, he's quoting this popular secular phrase that we saw all the way back in chapter 6, verse 12. He says, all things are lawful, but not, and then he adds his own commentary, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Paul doesn't disagree with the statement, all things are lawful. It's a popular secular phrase. He says, I have the right to do anything I desire. Paul doesn't disagree with that statement, but he challenges the notion for the follower of Jesus. For the disciple, what does this mean? What does it mean to have freedom in the gospel? Something may be lawful. That is, you have the right to do it, but it may not be helpful, Paul says. Something may be lawful, but it may not build up. And so the governing principle for Paul in this section of this letter really chapter 8, 9, 10, and bleeding into now 11, is this. Build others up in love. Build others up in love. Don't forget verse 1 of chapter 8, where Paul says very clearly that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. You may know what is good and right in your mind, you may understand what is correct and what truth is. But Paul wants the Corinthians to understand the right information in your head 
with the wrong motivation in your heart will result in tearing down and not building up. This is an express command for the church. We are to work to be built up in love, like a structure is built up, like a physical structure being built up. But in our case, not a physical one, but a spiritual one. How are we built up as the body of Christ? Paul says it's through love, and this is going to carry us all the way through chapter 13. You know chapter 13. 1 Peter 2, 4, and 5 says it clearly. As you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourself, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So the local church, again, our definition of the local church, a People, the people of God set apart for God's purposes. What's the blueprint for building up the church? What is your role as someone who is a follower of Jesus in the context of the local church? Is it a solid plan to reach millennials? Is it a mailer inviting people to a service on Resurrection Sunday? Is it a leadership conference? It's none of these. The blueprint The blueprint for building the church is loving one another well. Jesus says it in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. He says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Would you like to know what your purpose is at Buffalo City Church? If you're here this morning, you're not here by mistake. Would you like to know what your purpose is in being here this morning? It's to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's to build up the body by being equipped through the leaders of the church and point others to Jesus, inviting them to follow Jesus in all areas of life. This is our mission restated. We exist to make disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ. Discipleship is evangelistic. We desire to see those who have yet to believe, who have yet to trust in Jesus to do so. Evangelism increases our breadth. But discipleship is also looking at others in the local church and inviting them to grow in the depth of their relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So outward focused, growing in our breadth, Inward-focused, growing in our depth. Both are essential for the local church. We cannot forsake our breadth for our depth. We cannot become ingrown. And we cannot forsake our depth for our breadth and say everything is about outside what happens outside these four walls. Both are absolutely essential. We should not, as followers of Jesus, pit one against another. Our breadth and our depth are both essential. So know what the Word of God says and lead others into the truth, helping them to engage the world around them with that truth. Do we want to know how to love others well? It's not random acts of kindness. It's faithful investment in other people over years and years and decades and decades. Doing a loving thing and loving people is very different. 
buying someone coffee or making them dinner is a loving act. And that can flow from love. But the self-sacrificial love that Paul says builds up the church says, I'm going to hop in head first in your life into the mess that I'm in it with you no matter what we uncover. This is how we picture the gospel in the local church. Jesus came to earth. He healed sickness. He healed disease. Blindness. All sorts of physical ailments. He taught the people who God is. He cared for the brokenhearted, the poor, and the marginalized. But he didn't stop there. He didn't stop on the surface needs. He went straight to the heart of the problem. He obliterated sin through his own death and defeated death with his own death. The love that Jesus showed wasn't just doing a loving thing. He condescended right into a world that was rotting from the inside out. And when he got here, he didn't say, wow, these people are so messed up. They are so toxic. I need to draw some boundaries. He willingly gave himself up to put an end to the inner rottenness of humanity, the sin that leads to death. And so when Jesus says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another, what he's saying is the world will know the people who are set apart for God's purposes by their willingness to engage one another, not just on the surface level, but at the level of the heart. This is implied in our text this morning and what we've seen Paul building to in 8 and 9 and 10 and now into 11. Paul expects the Corinthians to know the position of the conscience of the person on their left and their right. To understand what that person is going through. What sorts of things might cause their conscience to be wounded. He expected the Corinthians to know if food sacrifice to idols was a problem for their neighbor. He expects the Corinthians to know how their actions affect their fellow believers. Friends, if we are free in the gospel, would, we love, would love constrain us? Would we rather choose to build others up through love than demand or exercise our rights? Would we choose to build others up in love, thereby building up the church? We look at verse 31. We know this verse. This verse is popular. It goes so well in the kitchen, doesn't it? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all the glory of God. We know that. What is Paul saying? He's saying eating or drinking or doing anything needs to be aimed at glorifying God. How do we glorify God in our eating and our drinking and everything? By allowing our choices to be controlled and constrained by love for others. To what Paul writes in Philippians 2, 4, to look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We do not glorify God by simply eating and drinking and doing everything to ourselves and think to ourselves, I'm glorifying God. We glorify God by eating and drinking and doing everything with the interests of others in mind and not just our own. If you're wondering, how do I glorify God in my eating and my drinking, my work, my parenting, my marriage? 
How do you glorify God in those things? That's not this ethereal thought. It's very intensely practical. You glorify God in every area of your life by looking not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. That's what God designed you for. That's what we must do as the local church. This is the portrait of love that Paul is painting and building in 1 Corinthians. Paul says that love constrains him. He chose to build others up through, the, through love, by, thereby building up the church. And Paul commands the Corinthians, be imitators of me as I am of Christ in 11.1. Now this verse is going to govern the rest of our time together this morning. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This becomes a radically important verse because it stands at the heart of our understanding of of discipleship. As Christians, we find ourselves in positions, whether you acknowledge it or not, acknowledge it this morning, we find ourselves in positions to both imitate others who are faithfully imitating Jesus, and we find ourselves in the position to call others to imitate us as we faithfully imitate Jesus. As Christians, we find ourselves in positions to both imitate others who are faithfully imitating Jesus and call others to imitate us as we faithfully imitate Jesus. So what does that look like? What should the life of someone who should be imitated look like? What should our lives look like as we call others to imitate us? The obvious answer is Christ-like, but what does that mean? It is a definable thing, and the New Testament is ripe with understanding of what it means to be like Jesus. We don't have to guess. You don't have to go out of this place and say, okay, be Christ-like, and then just take a shot in the dark. We know what it is, and even in 1 Corinthians, the rest of our time is just going to be a thought process in the back of the ideas that we've seen exhibited in Paul's life and what he calls the Corinthians to do as they pursue Christ-likeness and as they see Christ-likeness exhibited in Paul himself. So I'm going to give you seven ways. This is not by any means an exhaustive list, but these are things that come up in 1 Corinthians. Seven ways, and briefly unpack them. Seven ways. These are seven characteristics a disciple should seek to imitate in others and call others to imitate in them. Seven characteristics a disciple should seek to imitate in others and call others to imitate in them. The seven are this. Called, not capable. Familiar? Faithful, not controlling. Content, not complacent. Urgent, not busy. Wise, not opinionated. Gracious, not demanding. Self-sacrificial and not self-serving. We're going to unpack each of these. We're going to process them together. We've got seven of them. We're going to go relatively quickly through these. The first couple we'll take a little bit more time on, and as we move through here, We'll, we'll spend a little bit less time on the other ones. This will be a great way for you to connect in community this week to consider these things, consider who you are following or seeking to imitate that are exhibiting these qualities, these Christ-like qualities, and then how these qualities, through the power of the gospel working in you, how these qualities are working themselves out in your day-to-day. So we begin at the top of the list, called, not capable. This is a 
familiar thought. Again, at the, at the very beginning of 1 Corinthians, in verse 26 of chapter 1, Paul tells his readers to consider their calling. Not their vocational calling, but their calling by God. One who plucked them out of the place of their, their, their poverty, from a place of their spiritual poverty, and put them in a place uh, where they will be made more into the image of Jesus. And so we must, as followers of Jesus, as those who are seeking to be Christ-like in our own lives, we must value calling over capability. Why? Our capability is determined by our limits. Our capability is determined by our limits. What we are called to is determined by God's limits, or more adequately, His lack of limits. If you are always focusing on your capabilities as a follower of Jesus, you will always stop short of your calling because you are a limited creature. That is the very definition of creature. You are limited by time. You are limited by energy. You are limited by skill. If you focus on your calling, that which God has set you aside for, however, you will rely on God to provide that which is necessary to accomplish the task on hand. Capability focuses on my limits. Calling focuses on God's or his lack of limits. So we ask ourselves the question, we say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We ask ourselves, how do I get in the mess with another human? I don't have the time. I don't have the energy. I don't have the wherewithal. I don't know what to say. Those are your limits. Consider almost every biblical character. Why don't we go to Moses? Consider Moses. He meets God in a burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, and God calls Moses to deliver the Israelites from Egypt. And in verse 10 of chapter 3, God says to Moses, he says, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Moses objects immediately. He keeps his own capabilities in view. In verse 11, he says, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I? You know how God responds. It wasn't who Moses was that would provide Israel's escape. It was who God was. Exodus 3, 13 through 15 then says, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What's his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God has also said to Moses, Say to this people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Moses' question in verse 11 is so asinine. He's standing in the presence of God, and he says, Who am I? And God says, it's not about who you are. It's about who I am. God isn't concerned with Moses' name and his capabilities. And he's not concerned with yours. He's concerned with his. God calls incapable people to bring about his purposes. 
this is the truth that you want to hitch your wagon to this morning. God uses imperfect people to bring about his perfect plan. Get your head around that. God uses imperfect people to bring about his perfect plan. That does not compute in any sort of way. So, stop laboring over your limits and allow God to work that out. Stop looking at God and saying, who am I that I should make disciples? Who am I that I should love others and build brothers, up, brothers and sisters up in Christ? You are called to those very things. You are absolutely incapable of them. You are a broken vessel. But it was God's good pleasure to use a house, the precious truth of the gospel, to place it in, house it in, a broken jar of clay. You are, in fact, incapable. Your limits are apparent. Stop pretending they're not. You are called. So strive to focus your calling above your capability and find others who are down the road in figuring out what that looks like in their world. And imitate them as they imitate Christ. So that's our first thing this morning. Look for people who are who understand what they are called to and do not focus solely on their capabilities and then call others into that as you pursue that in Christ. The second thing this morning then is faithful, not controlling. Faithful, not controlling. Faithfulness, we've said, as a church is our metric for success. Being faithful to one another. Being faithful to that what God has called me. I have a friend who regularly says, probably not originally, but he always says that it's hard to start something, or it's easy to start something, it's hard to finish it. It's easy to go to that Bible study in weeks one and two. It's hard when it gets to eight, nine, and ten. It's easy to load the kids up for community group for the first or second time. It's hard when you've been here for four years. Faithfulness at its heart exhibits trust in God. We are to engage in the task that God gives us in his word and allow the results to be produced by him. Like Paul says back in chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. We want to be faithful people. We want to imitate faithful people. Faithless, faithful people trust God for results. Faithless people try to control outcomes. We are to leave the results to God. Like Paul was faithfully planting and Apollos was faithfully watering. Those are the tasks given to us. God will handle the outcomes. There is the temptation to attempt to control outcomes. But that leads us to the next thought. We want to be Content, not complacent. Find people to imitate who are content, but not complacent. Contentedness is not often considered in our, in our culture. It's not considered, honestly, ever. Jeremiah Burroughs, Puritan, writes in the 17th century, he defines contentment like this. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit 
which freely submits and delights in God's wise and faithful disposal in every condition. How many content people do you know? How many people do you know who aren't just grabbing for more? Our culture is always saying that we should push for more, more money, status, power, pleasure, you name it. Very few people are content right where they are this morning. Make an assessment of your own heart right now. Are you content? Are you moving on to the next thing? What tasks do you have to accomplish later today that your mind is already there? As Christians, we are called to live lives of contentment. Paul says it. Philippians 4, 11 through 13. You know 13. 11 says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul is saying that he can be content despite his circumstances. He can do all things. Christ who strengthens him. He can be content in every situation. I would posit to you this morning that Paul's life situation was probably significantly worse for the majority than it is for any one of us in this room. He can be content despite his circumstances. Why? Because he knew God and what was accomplished for him in Christ Jesus. There was nothing a circumstance could add or subtract from Paul's life. Paul's life was hid with Christ in God. C.S. Lewis says it like this in The Weight of Glory. He who has God in everything else has no more than he who has God alone. Andrew Davis suggests this. Has Christ crucified and resurrected on your behalf done enough to make you content today? Or must, you do, must he do a little more? We must not confuse contentment with complacency, however. Sometimes we see people in our context that are just low maintenance. And we misidentify them as content. How do we know if someone is content and not just complacent? Simple question to ask yourself. How do I know I'm content and not complacent? Think about how you use your words. Am I complaining regularly? Complacent people complain. They're discontent. They just don't care to do anything about it. Content people offer thanks to God in all circumstances. We want to work towards contentment and lead others into contentedness as well. Why? What could be added to eternal life? That question that Davis posits. What what could be added to the eternal life that we have in Christ Jesus? Will a few extra minutes of sleep, will a little more peace and quiet, will a new boat or car or truck, will a job promotion, will retirement, will getting your way, will exercising your rights, what do we have that we did not receive? Imitate those who are content and seek to model contentedness for those who remain discontent. The next thing then, next characteristic, urgent but not busy. I'm going to move through these a little more quickly. We are called to live lives of urgency. 
Now this is a tension with the last one. Contentment and urgency don't seem to always go together. However, we are called to live lives of urgency. The gospel message demands that we always be on red alert. People need to hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and people need to actively apply the good news of Jesus Christ to their lives. We don't know the day or hour when Jesus will return, but he promised he is returning. In Luke chapter 10, verse 2, Jesus says, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. There is a plentiful harvest in Jamestown, North Dakota. But there is more work than there are those to do the work. So Jesus says, that incites urgency. Disciples who make disciples. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to be raised up in the local church in order that they may equip the saints for the work of ministry. This incites urgency in us. It does not incite busyness in us. People who are too busy to discuss the spiritual are not those who should be imitated. We are called to rest in our God, to manage our time well, and give that time to the most important things. Sheer busyness clouds mission. Sheer busyness clouds mission. Urgency clarifies it. I had a loved one who suffered a significant injury, and I became responsible for getting that person the help that they needed. And as the gravity of the situation presented itself, as the gravity of the situation presented itself, adrenaline went into my bloodstream and it became immediately, dramatically clear the thing that needed to be done. Task after menial task, busyness upon busyness that comes to us in the daily life leaves us wondering, why am I doing these things? But when we feel the urgency of the mission, we are compelled. The question why is clear. I am convinced that many Christians live in a cloud of busyness rather than urgency and clarity that mission provides them. If you want to imitate those who are urgent, who see the gospel as needing to go out, and don't just muddy their time with menial tasks. The next characteristic is wise, not opinionated. This one hits close to home for me. I've been told by several people that I'm an opinionated person. Proverbs 18.2 says, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Are we seeking wisdom and understanding? Are we praying for it, as James commands us to do? Or are we just shouting out our opinions? Jesus was wisdom incarnate. We must imitate those who are wise. Wisdom from a 24-year-old this week. I asked John, my intern, what's the difference between opinionated and wisdom? And in just a gush of wisdom, he said, opinions flow from us, wisdom flows from God. Our opinions come from us, our preferences, our desires, where we want. Wisdom acknowledges God first. Proverbs 2.5 says, For the 
Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. From the depravity of our own heart flows our opinions. From the perfect heart of our God flows wisdom. Next characteristic, gracious and not demanding. We tend to demand perfection. We are a performance-based culture. We demand perfection from others and hope that, the great irony, as we hope that they then extend grace to us when we miss the mark. But we should see the grace that God has given to us in Christ Jesus and apply it to ourselves and to others. Ephesians 2.5 Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. We should see that grace and act accordingly. We should not be performance-driven people. We come into a space like this with a lot of people on a Sunday morning, and we are tempted to think about how things could be better. How that person could have done that thing better. How that person could have done that thing better. How the preaching could have been better. Could have been, probably. That's where we're tempted. We're tempted to overlay this performance-driven approach to everything. But we need to be gospel-driven. When we hold up our standard and demand that people meet that standard, we're willfully ignoring that we missed God's standard, all of us. And yet he still freely gave you a way to be right with him. It's not based on your performance. It's based on the performance of Jesus given to you. So we should seek to be gracious and not demanding gospel-centered, not not performance-driven. The next characteristic that we see in 1 Corinthians that Paul calls the Corinthians to imitate in him. This is the seventh and last one I'll mention this morning. Self-sacrificial and not self-serving. This section continues on. Paul's admonition in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, bleeding into 11, is just this, practice self-sacrifice. Paul practiced self-sacrifice as he followed Jesus. Jesus went to his death, literally sacrificing himself. In a couple of weeks, we are going to celebrate the death of Jesus on Good Friday and his resurrection on Resurrection Sunday. The forgiveness of sins of the world was what Jesus' death paid for. Paul knew suffering. Paul gave up his rights as to not put a barrier in the way of the gospel. And we have an example upon example of Paul's self-sacrifice. But let me ask you just a practical question this morning for this space that may help you assess where you're at. When we come to church on a Sunday morning, when we come together for corporate worship, our activity and involvement in the life of the church, whether it be in a community group or serving in a different capacity throughout the course of the week, when we evaluate our activity and involvement in the church, are we primarily consuming? Are we primarily consumers? Are you just here to get 
What am I going to get out of the music or the sermon? Or how can I actively serve others? That's the flip side. How can I show others the love of Jesus on Sunday and throughout the week? This is a problem in our churches. Our mindset is so inundated with consumerism throughout the course of the week. You turn on the TV, watch a basketball game, and for five minutes of commercials, you're thinking to yourself, wow, I really need that thing or whatever. And it's so subconscious, so just ingrained in who we are. We're primarily built as a, as a people who consume. So we're just a church consumer. We're going to leave this place on Sunday morning starving. You're going to come and you'll be like, boy, I hope to get fed this morning. You'll walk out and you'll feel hungry. Senator Ben Sass, he's the senator in Nebraska, started his book this week called The Vanishing American Adult. He writes this, We know Americans consume exorbitant amounts of media every day, whether on television, on the internet, on tablets or smartphones. We also just consume too much stuff. And people remain unhappy and uncertain as to why. And if we show up into the local church and only have our self-service in mind, you will inevitably starve to death. That service might be like, oh, I just want to get something out of this, or it might be, how can I get out of here as quickly as possible? But we will inevitably starve to death if that's our posture. In order to follow Jesus, you must put your faith into practice. That which you say you believe must become part of your routine on a Sunday morning. And that practice is self-sacrifice. As Jesus freely gave himself up for us, so we must freely give ourselves up for others. Sassley goes on to write after he said, uh, and people remain unhappy as uncertain as to why he goes on to write, well, we know why. Consumption is not the key to happiness. Production is. Meaningful work that actually serves and benefits neighbor, thereby making a real difference in the world, contributes to long-term happiness and well-being. Consumption just consumes. Sass is right, but let me, let me say to you this. The word production, let's substitute that out. Based on our biblical understanding, it isn't what we as Christians are looking for. That's just production. We are looking for faithful activity in the service of King Jesus, the King of the universe. If you show up and consume only, you will find frustration. If you show up and serve others, you will find fulfillment. Why? As a Christ follower, the most meaningful work in which you can engage is to be a disciple and making disciples of Jesus Christ. Do you want to make a difference in your life? Do you want to make a difference in your life? Yes, you do. Point others to the one who altered the trajectory of human history by paying for the sin of the world and making a way for broken, sinful, corrupt creatures to be right with their creator for all of eternity. Point others there. If you want to waste your life, focus on the temporary, avoid difficult conversations, avoid difficulty in general, ignore others and live only for yourself. Friends, your life will make the greatest impact by pointing others to Jesus. You can do that in all the spheres of your life. You don't have to drastically reorient your day. Go to work and 
Pray for opportunities to tell them who He is. To teach them what He did. To teach them to worship Him. To teach them to serve like He served. Self-sacrifice. Call others to imitate you as you imitate Christ. So in conclusion this morning, very simply, consider those you are imitating. Take some time this week and really think about this. Think about who you aspire to be like. Or maybe as time went on throughout your life, who you built yourself towards. Who do you aspire to be like? If there's no one, find someone. If it's a poor picture of Christ-likeness, get rid of it. Consider those you are imitating or aspiring to be like and evaluate them through these lenses that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians. Are they called and not focusing on their capabilities? Are they faithful and not controlling? Are they content, not complacent? Are they urgent, but not busy? Are they wise, but not opinionated? Are they gracious, but not demanding? Are they self-sacrificial, but not self-serving? And consider those who are imitating you. If you're a parent, you have this incubator, this home with these kids in it. If that's you this morning, consider the fact that your kids are imitating you. Are you imitating Christ? Consider those who you work with who might fall under your purview at work. Are they seeing Christ in you? Consider your brothers and sisters on your right and your left. Do they have enough of an understanding of who you are? You may be deficient in one of these areas. We all are. We all are dramatically deficient in all of these areas. But are we working? Are we working them out? Through the power of the Spirit given to us, are we showing others Jesus? It is not arrogance to ask another to imitate you as you imitate Christ. It is acknowledging the calling that has been placed on you. If it is about your capability, then yes, it's arrogant. But if it's about God and his infinite wisdom and him working it out in your life, this is your calling. Find others that you can imitate. Call others to imitate you and seek to build up those through love. Friends, this is your purpose in the local church. He loved us first. God loved us first, and now we have the great privilege of loving others with the same love in order that we might show the world that we are his disciples. We might show the world who Jesus is. We might show the world that we're his followers. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning for the truth of your word. God, we thank you that you have created a way for us in Christ Jesus to be made right with you. God, may now as we work that out in our lives as an expression of local church, may we see these things clearly. 
God, may we desire to be those who imitate Christ and call others to imitate us. God, may we not focus on what we are capable of, but what we are called to. God, may we not be controlling, seeking to bring about some outcome in our lives, but may we be faithful to the task at hand. God, may we not just be consumed with busyness, but may we have urgency to see the gospel go out. God, may we not be complacent. May we be content in you. God, may we not just freely express our opinions about anything and everything, but may we seek the wisdom of God from the heart of God. Lord God, may we be people who are sacrificial in our service to one another. God, we praise you. God, we understand that all of this is possible because of the truth of the gospel. We seek to imitate Christ. We don't seek to imitate a a nice formula. We seek to imitate Christ in our daily life who freely gave himself up for sinners like us. God, we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.